We're going to read from John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. We're only going to read two verses, the first two verses. John 17, 1 through 2. Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Let's pray. Dear Father, you set a table before us, and we acknowledge that it is your table. We acknowledge that we need to approach it according to your mandate. We need to approach it um, through your righteousness. We need to approach it in your thinking. So direct our hearts and our minds towards this today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, the main purpose of our communion meditation this morning is to see the scope of this high priestly prayer. You know, when you, when you write a paper, the scope is what, what ground are you going to cover? When you have a business plan, it's what's, what's going to be done here. In a prayer like this, in an intercessory, in a, in a prayer where God is, where Christ is mediating on our behalf, the question is, who? Who, who are the people that Christ is praying for? So that's the main thing that we're going to see. But before we get there, let's, let's just look at verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted his eyes up to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. He lifted his eyes up to heaven. You know, our, our posture directs our thinking. The external structures of worship help us to do what God wants us to do. There, there are times for recall and for reason and for repentance, like just what Joel just did and what we have done. And there are times to contemplate what, what we're coming to here. The, the life and the death of Christ, the body and the blood of Christ. So there's a time, there's, there's a liturgy for doing certain things. And, and, and we're going to see that this, this is a specific prayer with a specific beginning and a specific ending. We'll see that a little bit later. But he lifts his eyes up to heaven. And he says, glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. You've heard it in, the, in theology terms. This is the economic function of the Trinity, how each person of the Trinity fulfills roles and supports each other for a singular purpose. In this case, glorification. So that's verse one. Ver, verse two is, is the main thing that I want to look at today, though. As you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Let's notice a couple of important words here. All and as many as. All flesh. The Father has given the Son authority over all flesh. And he has given the Son a certain number for salvation. So you can see the Venn diagram, Jesus' authority, all flesh. Even if people don't understand, don't acknowledge the authority of Christ, they are still under His authority because 
God the Father has given that authority to the Son. He's also given eternal life to as many as the Father has given him. So this is what, in terms of uh, Reformed theology, we would say limited atonement. And it hasn't been too long that Rodney went over that, all of those things. I think he said, but I'm not exactly sure, it may have been Pastor Kaiser, maybe a better term is particular atonement. I think that is a better term than limited atonement. Because the emphasis in the Bible is not so much on whom he did not save, but whom, whom he did save. Okay, um, R.C. Sproul, I, the, probably the thing that we remember most from R.C. Sproul is this wonderful statement. The question is not, why didn't he save others? The real question is what? Why did he save me? That's the question. Now, when I say particular atonement is a better term, that does not mean that the, when the Lord is choosing some, he is not, not choosing others. He is sovereign he is actually, when he saves, he is actually condemning. But the Bible's emphasis for us is on the fact that he chose us and that he saved us. And that's her question. Why did he save me? So we're, we're looking at particular atonement. We're looking at limited atonement. Let's look at verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So who is Christ praying for here? Well, if you look at verses 6 through 8, he's praying for his disciples. He's praying for his apostles, his disciples, and those people whom he's interacted with who have believed, and he hasn't lost a single one. He's praying for them. These are the people in real time that believed his words. Maybe you're like me, when, when, when you read this, I, I forget often what the rest of it has, and so I'm praying along, I'm saying, wow, I wish I'd been alive at the time, because then I could be included in this prayer, wouldn't that be great? And of course, you, you read on, and then you get to verse 20. Let's read verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And you go, oh, okay, good. <laughs> yeah, I, have, you, have you had those nightmares where, you know, you didn't show up for class, you missed the boat, you know, all those, everybody's had those kind of prayers. You say, no, Christ actually was praying for me. If you're a Christian, you're included in this prayer. You specifically, your name, he is praying for you and me. Now, I want to anticipate a question, though. Look at verse 20. Again, let's read it again. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, it is possible to look at this verse in a certain way, and many have looked at this verse in a certain way in saying that what Christ is praying for, what the Father has elected, is those people whom in their life are going to believe. God looks through the corridors of time and sees those people who will believe, and those are the ones that he chooses. Those are the ones that he elects. It's a common theme, more common today than it used to be, but it is very common. But 
but it's wrong. I can see how people might think that from reading just this verse, but when we read the Bible, we can read it individually, but we need to understand it comprehensively. So when Christ is praying for those people who were not yet born, now he's in the element of foreknowledge. He's foreknowing them before they even are created. And the Bible has a lot to say about foreknowledge. So we should instantly go there and see what does God say about foreknowledge. And we could look at a number of things, but I'm going to bring up three verses, and these were brought up by Isaac Ambrose's Looking Unto Jesus. I've, I mentioned that book many, many times. But he encapsulates something very succinctly and very helpful here. I'm going to read three verses and then three responses or thoughts of Isaac Ambrose to those verses, okay? The first one is Romans 8, 9. This is what Romans, sorry, Romans 8, 29. This is what Romans 8, 29 says. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Okay, this is Ambrose's response to that. He says, if God did foreknow them first conformed, why did, why did then he then predestinate them to be conformed? Okay. Another one, 1 Peter 1, 2. This is what 1 Peter 1, 2 says. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. This is what Ambrose says. If God did foreknow them first obedient, and that's the assertion. That's the assertion of some people who say he's looking through time and he's seeing who's going to be obedient. This is what Ambrose says. If God did first know them obedient, how then did he elect them into obedience? You see, he's not observing He's electing into the obedience. And, and this last one, I think, is probably my favorite one. This is Acts 13, 48. And this one's very clear. Acts 13, 48. I'm going to read it in the King James this time. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. This is what Ambrose says. Notice that this does not say and as many as believed were ordained to eternal life. You see, God elects us into the belief. He elects us into being conformed. He elects us into obedience, as well as the salvation. Well, in closing here in the community meditation, I want us to zoom out just a little bit. If you look at your Bible... There are subtitles probably in your Bible, and I think these subtitles are probably correct here. So, verses 1 through 5, Jesus is praying for himself. In, in 6 through 18, Jesus is praying for his disciples. And then in verses 20 through 26, he's praying for all believers. And you see what's being done here. First of all, he's praying for that intimate group, him in the Trinity, that they may be close. And then he pulls in his disciples into that same fellowship. And then he pulls in us, all believers, into that same fellowship. It's an amazing thing. 
What's the extent of this fellowship? How close is it? Let's read. Let's, let's read uh, verses 20 through 22. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may, may be one just as we are one. I mean, there's, there's no way to degrade this or soften this. He's inviting us into his very fellowship. He exercises the communion of Trinity. He invites all of his disciples into that communion, and then he invites all of us into that. Well, as we approach this table, I think that we need to think about who, what was the scope of his high priestly prayer. And he gives us two reasons that he wants us to think about this. There's two evidences. First of all, he says it. He says, he says who he is praying for, so we need to think about that. And secondly, he does it. I mentioned that we, we will talk about the end of this prayer. This prayer ends. He prays for himself. He prays for his disciples. He prays for all believers, and then it stops. That's it. 18 verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples. The prayer is done. And so, <clears throat> this prayer, this high priestly prayer, is burned into history. It's done. And if you belong to Christ, your name was prayed for in that historical document, not document, but prayer that can never change. And what it means in real terms is that we're invited into the very fellowship of God. And I, I just can't add to that. So let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, um, as we come to your table, we delight in the fact that you prayed for us. You prayed for those who believe you and that you invited us into your fellowship. We come now amazed, thankful, and, and in the position that you put us in, that we are in communion with you. Oh, Father, uh, let us feast. Let us feast at your table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.